You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. The places where the machine excels is, you know, essentially rote calculation. And that's in contrast to the artistry and intuition that Stylist or a human is going to be able to bring into the mix. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Jeff Magnuson, Vice President of Data Platforms at Stitch Fix. Jeff leads a team responsible for building the data platform that supports the company's team of 80-plus data scientists and other business users. Prior to Stitch Fix, Jeff managed the data platform architecture team at Netflix, where he helped design and build uh, many of the components of its Hadoop-based infrastructure and big data platform. This is our second podcast with Jeff. In the first episode, we talked about the role of a data engineer in a data science operation and how Stitch Fix has created a platform to support data science self-service. In this episode, we'll focus on the data architecture that Stitch Fix created to support its data science workloads, as well as the need to balance man and machine, art and science. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, it's good to be here. You started out running a pretty traditional BI shop at Netflix that used Teradata for Data Warehouse, Ab Initio for ETL, and MicroStrategy for BI. At Stitch Fix, your environment consists of Amazon S3, Spark, Hive Tables, and Presto, so mostly open source, all cloud, no relational database, and no BI tools. So why the change? What does this environment do that the other can't? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when I started at Netflix, it was primarily a DVD business. Um, and you're right, it ran a pretty traditional BI tech stack um, to handle the big data. Um, but that all changed when Netflix decided to take a focus on streaming rather than DVD. Um, and in doing so, they also decided to re-platform um, out of a data center and kind of a traditional uh, Java shop, uh, you know, with a kind of a monolith design around a single um, database onto AWS into a microservice architecture. Um, and they also abandoned relational databases uh, to serve production. And they uh, chose Cassandra as a, a primary data store um, and then split it, split that into, you know, several private Cassandra nodes uh, backing the or several private Cassandra clusters packing the microservices. In order to support that environment and a, 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 as well as you know, support type of algorithms development and process the volumes of data that we needed to ingest in a streaming world, which was actually producing a lot more um, data than, than the DVD world, right? Like we could watch when um, uh, customers hit pause, fast forward, rewind. We knew how much of a show you consumed. And so user activity data um, blew up over there versus DVD world where we knew we mailed something out. We knew when you mailed it back, but we couldn't, we couldn't really tell how you interacted with it. And so in order to ingest all that data and then you know, do data science on top of it, we really needed to replatform. And so we replatformed um, uh, onto Hadoop uh, all on AWS, all in the cloud, and that was uh, really a decision to just keep it parity with um, where the production stack at Netflix was headed. And I think you know AWS on the cloud is a great scalable um, place to do data science just because of elasticity and flexibility. And so 
you know, as we started to do all this concurrent data science up there uh, and focus on a larger breadth of algorithms, we needed um, a more elastic, scalable environment um, to, to support that. And that's, that's the same at Stitch Fix, although uh, we just started uh, out, out the gate with that focus where we're focusing on algorithms development and data products, um, essentially like over business intelligence. Um, and so, you know, the way that I like to think about that is using data science and algorithms to lead the business versus um, uh, informing the business. And that's like these machine to machine integrations um, that are doing more, more automation and decision making versus dashboards and reports that are informing um, uh, decision making um, from, from executives. And so, you know, I think like what it boils down to as far as um, what the environment does that um, the traditional environment can't um, is it supports a higher degree of concurrency and more controllable concurrency um, and flexibility. So, you know, when you look at these traditional MPP databases like Teradata, um, you know, they're, they're great at a lot of things um, and they're not so good at a lot of things too, um, and and really that trade-off is is around like how it supports a concurrency model. So you know, without getting too much into it, um, those MPP databases are built in such a way that they're distributing data um, essentially like every table across um, you know every node in the cluster. And so um, what that means is that a query submitted to a Teradata or MPP database cluster is going to spin every CPU um, on, on the cluster. And so you, know, you can answer a single query really fast, but if you write a bad query, um, you, you're, you're basically like hogging like a resource on the cluster that's needed to satisfy anything else behind it. And so um, the concurrency, like if you've got you know, a, a hundred different queries that need to run you know, across that that cluster and one of them is bad, that means 99 of them are kind of lining up behind it. Um, and that's that's a little bit of a hyperbole because they've got, you know, workload management features and things to kind of mitigate that. But um, in, a, in a big data world, you, you live in, in a way that um, doesn't distribute data quite the same. Um, the compute resources are decoupled from the storage um, in a bigger way. And so, you know, while while you can still have you know one out of a hundred queries being really bad, those compute resources that that are getting hogged by the bad query aren't necessarily blocking other other workloads from continuing. And so, you know, being able to to scale nodes in the cluster um, in that big data environment means that we can, you know, essentially allow like concurrency and isolation of work. Um, uh, to clear up in a in a way that that it's a lot harder to to manage um, in a traditional environment sense, um, and then with the rest of the tools, like primarily the ETL tools, they're they're great at a at a lot of things that are um, primarily focused at moving data around and building pipelines of you know feeding data from relational database to relational database, but when you start wanting to do like fancier ML um, and, and AI type workloads, then you're usually seeking another tool on top of it. 
Um, and since that was the focus of you know, where we wanted to, to be over at Stitch Fix, I kind of took the approach of wanting to support you know, one tool set versus the kind of like ETL tool plus um, tools for, for doing uh, uh, ML and data product development on top of that. And so so is, there a, is there a role for the MPP relational database at all, in, in your opinion? Because one thing I thought they were better for than say a Hadoop environment was the user concurrency, but now you're saying that's not necessarily true. So uh, is there a case where you would actually use those environments? Yeah, for sure. And uh, even at, at Stitch Fix for a long time, we've had um, our Redshift database. And so um, primarily that's serving dashboards um, and, and reports and ad hoc query case. Um, and, and so I think that's where, where the sweet spot is for, for a lot of those tools, right? And like also when you don't have um, the huge influx of concurrent data processes um, running against a, a, an MPP database like that, then you know, you're not hitting these concurrency problems. So it's not necessarily um, concurrency of consumer type users, but consumer, or sorry, concurrency of um, uh, more like ML workloads that I don't think they excel at, um, where, where it's very difficult to to tune the, the different data access patterns. Um, it's not like they're serving dashboards in, in that kind of like ML development sense. They're you know, serving model building and training uh, workloads, which just tend to be intensive in a different way. Okay, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned that you lead with data science and the reporting and dashboarding, which you do, that, that comes um, after. Uh, and I've heard a couple of people at more advanced organizations say this, that uh, they start with predictive and if needed, they develop the descriptive after that. Or in some cases, they start with descriptive and realize, ah, you know, the solution here is more predictive than we thought. <laughs> um, could you comment on how you start predictive and how the descriptive uh, you know, what role that then plays or where that comes up? I, I mean, I think we believe in both. Um, and it's, it, the starting place could be e either or. Um, and I, it, it really depends on um, kind of who's, who's leading, who's leading the, the, the charge there. And so a lot of ideas um, that come out of Stitrix data science are actually originated by the data scientists themselves. And in, in those cases, um, especially if it's not an area of the business where a high degree of um, descriptive uh, analytics has been asked for in the past, then you know, that's, that's going to kind of default to, to um, a, a place that's going to produce data products and, and automation over um, dashboards meant to inform. Um, where where there already is like a big investment in uh, the, the business around, you know, operating on a certain data set, we absolutely believe in providing uh, transparency into the data and, you know, it, informing our, our users to make the best decisions possible. And so 
in that case, uh, we're going to, you know, invest in that visibility and building dashboards and, and things. And as our data scientists engage with the, with the business more and more and, um, you know, figure out ways that we can integrate, uh, automated decision-making into it, then it transitions to that place. And so, you know, the starting point is really, I think, you know, what, what team begins leading the, the charge. And so if it's more operators, um, uh, in the business who, who need the data to, to operate better then it's going to start, you know, from a place of, um, dashboards and, and descriptive analytics versus uh, data scientists, you know, having an insight that's, that leads to tackling a problem I, I found typically, you know, then kind of defaults to a more, uh, automated approach. Okay. So to finish up the technology discussion, what, what tools do you use for data science and what tools do you use for dashboard creation? Um, so the tools for data science, uh, it's a, it's an open source stack, um, mostly R and Python for model training and um, Python for model serving with an infrastructure that's uh, based on uh, also a lot of Python for uh, 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 infrastructure and tooling around around the, the data scientists that go for a lot of microservices. Um, and I, I always like to say Python and R are the languages of data science. Uh, JVM is sort of the stack for data infrastructure. And so um, all of the big data stuff or Spark clusters, Presto, um, that's going to be a Java and Scala. Uh, just because that's where the community is with that. Um, and then a lot of the, the tooling on top of it is built uh, mostly in-house. So we have a custom-built feature store, model store, um, tooling around model training and model serving. Um, uh, so a wrapper that we call Con uh, around our um, uh, models that allow um, data scientists to basically express uh, just a Python function and turn that into a microservice very easily that'll you know connect to our feature and model stores. Um, and then some custom tools around our uh, pipelines um, and getting our models and our features into the um, different stores. I talked about in the last episode, Flotilla, which enables a lot of the um, uh, tasks to run um, and that's built around uh, ECS, which is Elastic Container Service um, on, on uh, Amazon. Um, and that focuses on, you know, basically these like Python and R jobs that are doing model training, uh, productionizing and scheduling those. We do um, all of that with containerization. So um, get a huge leverage from Docker um, in the mix there. Um, and then you also asked about dashboards. Um, we had our data scientists doing a lot of the dashboard building uh, from the onset. And so we used um, uh, Shiny, which is uh, R-based uh, dashboards. Very easy for data scientists to create dashboards in Shiny. Um, not so easy for non-data scientists to do that, but um, they, they like it. Um, we also have a lot of custom-built uh, dashboards and data visualization tools. And we still do that quite a bit uh, when we need 
really fancy dashboards or um, dashboards that actually capture a lot of user feedback. So if we're asking um, for the human to take decision-making the last mile and we wanna basically like capture that interaction with our data products, um, that's gonna be a custom built dashboard which is using React and JavaScript. And then for more um, traditional dashboards, uh, rapid development and informing the business, we just recently brought in Looker to help us with that kind of stuff. So for some of your dashboards, you're actually capturing the decision in the dashboard itself and then pushing that out somewhere? Yeah, so um, especially in the uh, world of uh, merchandising data science, so basically the problem of figuring out um, uh, how much we should buy um, and, and when of, of a thing, uh, we, we really want to blend um, uh, the the art and the science and you know have humans in the mix of um, uh, informing those kinds of decisions um, also a good example is um, our hybrid styles um, use a lot of like custom uh, uh, kind of dashboarding technologies to interact the human and the machine um, so there's quite a few cases like that where we want to capture the output and then also just have a more interactive type dashboard that's running um, some more sophisticated modeling on the back end that's then getting served up. So you know you really want to kind of frame that as just a you know, any kind of like web application in a way like it has a back end and a front end. It's just very front end heavy in a lot of cases. Right. So you mentioned art and science and blending those. You've also talked about automating decisions and machine to machine. Um, on the blending art and science, uh, you know, you're heavily into data science, but you do believe in the value of human decision making. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit more and provide an example of how you blend art and science in a, in a heavy data science centric organization. Yeah, one of the mottos at Stitchfix is better together. Um, and that comes off of this idea of blending art and science together to make better decisions. Um, and that crops up in a lot of places in the business. Um, uh, and the, the, the easiest one to talk about is our styling algorithm. Um, and so, so, you know, Stitchfix is really well known for the, the data science work that it does. The typical thing that we talk about is recommending um, uh, clothing. And, and so, you know, that always is going to have a personal stylist in the mix. Um, and the reason for that is that um, there's, there's things that machines are good at um, uh, and there's things that, that humans are good at. We've done a lot of testing around, um, you know, how they perform separately, and we find that, you know, really, however we spin it, um, you know, having that styling problem, um, the human plus machine capturing the insights that the machine is really good at capturing, capturing the intuition um, of the human, and you know, kind of tuning that interaction um, so that you basically have this conversation between. Um, uh, the stylist and the styling algorithm um, uh, basically produces better outcomes for the business. And so, you know, we find that in other areas as well, but um, 
that idea kind of cropped up from the very heart of Stitch Fix and in, in that styling problem. It's you know always had some form of algorithm and a personal stylist uh, curating the output of that and you know choosing what is ultimately going to be um, uh, picked for our client. Right, and I think uh, you've said in the past that m machines are pretty good at uh, making repetitive decisions or decisions that happen uh, frequently, whereas the humans are uh, good at making uh, decisions based on exceptions. Uh, like one of the customers is on vacation or you know going to a different part of the world that they don't normally do, and therefore the wardrobe or the clothes they need is gonna be very different from the norm of their buying pattern. So does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, I think that's a huge value of the human in the mix. Um, and it also allows for an easier data science problem in some sense, um, meaning that we're not having to um, vet uh, all of those styling algorithms and models when we put them in production to make sure that, um, you know, they're, they're not in, for example, like maybe like one out of a thousand cases producing a really bad you know, recommendation that the stylist is going to, you know, notice that because of some exceptional, exceptional circumstance or weirdness in, um, in the data and override that with their own decisions. So that, that's definitely a place where the human excels as exceptions. Um, uh, the places where the machine excels is, you know, essentially rote calculation. Uh, and that's, you know, in contrast to the artistry, artistry and intuition that a stylist or a human is going to be able to bring into the mix. And so if you look at, you know, the problems in data science that um, get a lot of press, uh, like computer vision and NLP, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of research going on there. There's a lot of hard problems to solve and certainly um, areas that we invest in at Stitch Fix as well. But they're considered hard in my opinion because in a lot of cases humans can generally intuit many things from the images and the text that state-of-the-art ml and ai currently can't and so um it it's stitch fix we have the luxury of um putting a, a human in in the mix there and so when we find you know there's there's areas like that where they can make a better decision than the machine then we certainly want to leverage that so you've got a lot of data scientists, a, a lot of models, uh, and then a lot of people interacting with models. How do you maintain data standards and consistency in this new environment? So, I mean, that is a, a, a hard thing for us to do um, compared to a more traditional uh, BI shop where, or, just a traditional organization design where essentially you have ETL engineers um, uh, curating the data and feeding that to, to a data science team that um, is going to do the, the model training and building, but not necessarily model production. So um, I've talked previously about this concept of full stack data scientists where um, you know, we expect our, our data scientists to be able to, to go and grab the data that they need and productionize that, do the model training, uh, push the, the resulting model into production. Um, and so that essentially means we have a lot of people in the mix creating data sets um, and you know, moving data around. And so um, that 
that means that we need to take more of a tooling based approach to data standards and, and consistency. Um, and so that's, that's where we focus, um, uh, trying to automate as much of that as, as, as possible, um, building um, tools that are going to capture some uh, uh, data quality measures um, at data storage time, for example. So baking that into the um, storage code. And you know, I think like a lot of the technologies there are pretty similar to what you build in a, um, a, a more traditional environment, but they require support for a much wider breadth of use cases and um, technologies. So for example, like, you know, how do you get um, uh, those kind of data quality standards um, and consistency enforced um, through tooling if the tooling has to support R and Python and Scala and Spark, right? Like, um, so so we push that as far down to the stack as possible. Um, I mentioned you know doing that in the storage code itself, um, and so so that's that's about as far down the stack as you can get. That's where I prefer to put a lot of this stuff, um, and that's because our data storage code is the same across all of those environments. So we've actually done a lot of work to um, control the read and write access uh, into a single code base that's maintained by um, my platform team and then getting that to plug into all of these different technologies um, so that we have basically uh, a place that uh, we control the code of that uh, is as close to the data as possible. So it sure seems like you've thought about everything here and, and developed a platform that will uh, get the data scientists to be as productive as possible. But if you had to do it over again at Stitch Fix, would you change anything? Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that um, Stitch Fix has been a, a learning experience for me. You know, there's certainly not, not things that we get right the first time. And so there's been, um, you know, several cases where we've had to iterate on um, the the platforms and the the tool sets that we we produce. I, I think the trickiest thing here is not necessarily the stack that we're currently running, but um, the path that we took to to get to that stack. Um, and and that that's because you know we've scaled the team from two data scientists up to um, the the. 80 or, or so that we have now. Um, and as we did that, the, the tool set had to basically change and scale to support. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about concurrency, but also um, uh, this kind of shift from um, you know, a small startup to a, a more specialized uh, data science department and you know, more uh, focused in scope uh, data scientists. And so um, the, the path that we took to, to get there, um, I, I think we invested in Spark probably um, too, too early on. It, it was in its infancy um, four or five years ago when we, when we picked it up. Um, and so that was, I think, a bit of a, a struggle for us to, to platform onto back then. It's a lot better now, but um, uh, I often think that if four years ago we had you know, invested in writing a lot of those data pipelines and movements and uh, Pig or Hive, um, 
that might have made more sense that there was a lot of time invested in trying to get that to work just as well on Spark, where it, it just wasn't pretty yet. Um, another regret that I have is um, I think we should have gotten an earlier start on containerization. Um, and so I'm a big advocate for that um, uh, containerization uh, in the sense of uh, using containers to actually um, uh, run a lot of the batch processing. And so our model training and um, uh, e ETL pipelines, if they're not running um, across Spark cluster, are running in, in these containers, which give um, a lot of autonomy to our data science, um, our, our data scientists to basically um, uh, isolate themselves and build these environments that have the, the libraries and um, things that they need to do state-of-the-art data science, but also um, allow separate portion of the, the platform to exist outside of that container and other containers that are controlled by platform um, uh, teams that you know are basically handling the more horizontal concerns of logging and serving and um, uh, uh, auditing metrics and things like that. And so um, the containerization story is something that I wish we had gotten a, a, an earlier start on because it's, it's provided us a lot of leverage um, and, and actually uh, uh, velocity in, in being able to develop um, uh, data products. Um, another problem that, that uh, we're still trying to, to kind of figure out solutions to uh, early on, we allowed this concept of schemaless data sets. Um, and so it's always been the case that we've known where all of our data exists and uh, how to access it. But um, we relaxed the requirement that we needed to actually um, uh, have a central uh, schema store for 100% of the data sets early on, meaning that you know, if you're a data scientist and you've got some intermediate output in, in a job um, that that you basically needed to like save off to um, uh, pick up some other point down the down the road in your data pipeline, um, we weren't capturing the we weren't enforcing a requirement that you you had to specify a schema on that, um, and so that's made certain data quality uh, challenges a lot harder because you're having to basically like go in and infer the schema on um, data sets. And there, there were some patterns that our data scientists developed around that that are highly leveraged in the code. And then we've had to back out of that to um, have more visibility into our data. Um, and so probably just not allowing that uh, from the onset. I think of it as more of a shortcut and a convenience than uh, real requirement for any work that needs to be done. Um, I, I would have just forced schemas to be uh, declared upfront. I also mentioned that we use uh, Redshift over at Stitch Fix. Um, and that's been tough for us from, from, the, from the aspect of, of um, concurrency that I talked about before. And so um, it's really convenient technology for anybody to use. Um, uh, and data scientists included. And so I would have set stronger guidelines and restrictions for um, uh, where Redshift is to be utilized in our stack um, upfront um, versus uh, allowing you know, certain um, 
data pipelines and data products to initially be developed on Redshift and then you know hit some scaling challenges that then need to replatform onto Spark. I think um, a lot more efficiency could be gathered just by you know doing it doing it on the the harder platform sooner. Um, uh, especially if you know this is something that you're going to have to invest in long term. So an example of that is uh, uh, demand modeling over at Stitch Fix. Um, uh, there were some aspects, um, mostly around like the way that Redshift indexes data that made it a really attractive technology to use early on. Um, and, and that scaling um, be became an issue at, at, at some point that it required then like a replatforming onto Spark. And so kind of those transitions around uh, how, how that apartment grows and scales and the technology choices along the way um, you know, that's what I would probably do differently if I had, um, I guess it's probably a 2020 hindsight kind of thing, but the, the things that I think we've, we've burned cycles on that we probably wouldn't have needed to, or where we've had to basically like shift, um, tech platforms for various pipelines and things that ultimately we could have probably predicted a little better, um, where they needed to land in the first place. Well, this is great, Jeff. I want to thank you once again for your time and your insights. And I'd love to be able to catch up with you uh, at a later date and hear what new things that you've developed for your data science team at Stitch Fix. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, Browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.